This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. My guest today is Eric Anderson from Los Angeles, California. Eric breaks every mold. He doesn't fit any stereotype you think he should. He's this muscular, athletic guy who has the most sensitive and empathetic heart you can imagine. He identifies as Hispanic, but has white skin and strawberry blonde hair. As you'll learn from our conversation, his racial ambiguity led to a lot of his insecurities. He speaks highly of his loving parents and his wonderful, supportive family, yet those close bonds weren't enough to keep him out of prison. He was that kid that was relentlessly bullied, who ended up growing up to be a very violent, angry person. He's the perfect example of when you meet people, you really have no idea who they are and what they've been through until you listen to their story. I've heard it said that when we judge others, we're wrong 90% of the time. That seems about right to me. Eric is thankful for the journey his life has taken him on, and although painful, knows that this was the exact path he needed to become the whole person he is today. He is a genuinely free person, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically. He just let it all go, and now he lives a free, full life that is about helping and encouraging others. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on Gramercy today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and getting to know you. Thank you. I'm uh, excited about it. Excellent. If we had a time machine and we could travel anywhere in history, where would you want to go and why? I'm going to say 1993 when I got out of high school at 18, just because I feel like that was like the turn of events that just uh, I kept allowing myself to get in trouble. I kept, you know, down this path of, you know, drugs, gangs, alcohol, violence, and now sitting here, I'm like, man, I never was a violent person. You know, I just, I allowed, I allowed myself to get violent, you know, with other yeah. people because, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that I went through when I was a young kid. But mm. yeah, I think 1993, when I graduated high school, I think I wish I could just redo that. And, but, you know, I mean, I'm happy with where I'm at today. That seems to be a theme, a recurring theme that I'm hearing. Everybody wants to go back to a simpler time and I can't blame them. Yeah, well, you know, you sit in a box or you sit in incarceration, you're locked up somewhere. Those are the things you, you're just mm-hmm. like, God, why? Do, I just want a regular life, a happy life, work, kids, you know. Yeah. And then when you get out, that's not the case. It's really? Not, yeah, oh, definitely. Not for me. I mean, I can't say for everybody, but 
But I know for me, like I wanted this simple life. And now that I'm out, I'm like, no, 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 no. I want a career. I want uh, wealth. I want to travel the world. You know, I, I want to enjoy the world. Experience life. Yeah. yeah. Not just around my block, not just around my home, like the yeah. entire world, you know, like I just want to do everything. I hear you. Well, I'm curious to learn what your childhood was like. You really liked 18, it sounds like. What, were, what led up to 18? What led up to, what so, were the good things and what were some of the hardships uh, that so created I, who you became? Okay, um, you know, my mom and dad are just uh, amazing people, both hard workers, been married since 1972, mm. uh, going on nearly 50 years of marriage, are still together to this day. Uh, uh, they raised me. My mom was born and raised in Mexico, came over here to this country, uh, I'm going to say around 60s, 70, late 60s. Uh, my father's also an immigrant. He came from Denmark, uh, migrated here during the 60s to work on Volvos. He was like one of the very first pioneers to work on Volvo cars because cool. there wasn't that many back then. And, you know, he had, a, you know, mechanic experience, uh, air pilot experience. So... When he came, you know, him and my mom met in Newport Beach, had me, bought a house in Costa Mesa. And, you know, I had dogs, I had pets, uh, had a big backyard. We had a pool, we had parties, we had cousins, family, we had a big family, you know. So nice. I, I, I grew up with a great family, you know, and uh, uh, Pops was, uh, he was always been, you know, he's, you know, Danish guy, you know, he comes from, you know, very strict family with his father was strict with him and, you know, he was strict with me. My mother looked at me as I was some golden child, you know, I fluent Spanish. I, you know, she was always, you know, asking me, hey, speak Spanish for us, you know, and uh, I think that played a role in my, like, felt like controlled. So at, by the age of 15 and a half, like I was already working. I had them sign me a work permit and I was working wow. with plus. I was trying to do everything I could to get out of the house because I wanted to hang out with my friends that my parents didn't approve of. Oh, you know, so I were think you an was, only child? No, I have a younger brother. Uh, he, unfortunately, you know, he followed my footsteps as well. And, but mm. he stopped after his first incarceration. But I played soccer since I was five years old all the way into high school. I played sports all my life. Uh, I was really small. And I think when I started going to elementary, you know, I identified as Hispanic, you know, because my mom, you know, speaks Spanish. Everyone around my family spoke Spanish. My cousins, nobody speak English, you know, besides me, my dad, my mom and my brother. I mean, my mom's English wasn't that well, but it was mm -hmm. good enough. Identified a Hispanic. So going to school, a lot of the Hispanic kids didn't identify me as one of them. So I kind of okay. got pushed out. Then the whites didn't really identify with me because they're like, oh, look at you trying to be Mexican. And you're not one of us. So I was like in the middle and I was like, I didn't know where to go, you know? So I used to tell my mom, I'm like, mom, what am I? She's like, you're my son, you know? And I'm like, yeah. no, mom. Like, what am I? Am I white? Am I Mexican? What am I? She goes, you're both. I go, mom, that's not working. That uh, doesn't help my problem. And, you know, she didn't understand the problem because she didn't understand the culture of bullying. You know, she comes from Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's not her fault that she wasn't like cultural uh, mm -hmm. uh, in-depth into like what she was understanding what I was going through. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty much fending for myself. And as I got bigger, and stronger you know i started getting more tougher i eventually became 
somebody that would stick up for himself. And I would stick up for myself at any given moment through high school. I've gotten multiple fights in high school to a point where I got kicked out of the school because mm. they were just, you know, they, ble- you know, because I was so aggressive at the while. I realized like, I have to be the one that makes the first move. I can't, all, I can't let, go ahead. It all started with bullying when you were younger. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know, and I think, you know, I don't like, I, you really can't blame a parent for not doing their best, especially when it's just so difficult to deal with, you know, society of, you know, you know, in elementary and uh, a society in junior high, intermediate, and then all the way to high school. Like my parents didn't go to high school out here. So they didn't understand the culture. Like, like I get it. Yep. Like, I know what to tell my kid. I know what to tell an at-risk youth, what they're going to be looking for through, you know? Mm-hmm. But for me, I wasn't able to adapt to it to where I realized like, oh, sticking up for yourself works. And then mm-hmm. punching the first kid. I remember punching him in the face and I went, oh, wow. People don't want to mess with me. And it just, the, uh, the little snowball got bigger and bigger, which was my head, got bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where I was like, I'd be willing to fight anyone at any given moment. I don't care if there's one, two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20. Like my mentality was like, I have to go first. Did you have a trigger temper or just a big oh, ego or? I think, it was, it was, I think it was my temper combined with alcohol, drugs, and, you know, just yeah, maybe even ego, you know, but, you know, it was yeah. just really, like, I just couldn't, I, I used to remember going to parties, and I used to remember, I have a list of guys that I remember, like, oh, I remember when you threw soda at me, I remember when you hit me in the back of the head in, in, in junior high, like, oh, I had a list of guys, I used to always tell them, like, hey, you remember me? You know, I was, mm-hmm. you know, I ended up being one of those very vengeful, revenge, mm-hmm. revengeful person. And it didn't seem like you forgot the people who hurt you either. No, no. never. Yeah. So that mentality and the willingness to fight ended up leading you into a gang. It sounds like earlier you said you were a part of a gang. Yeah, well, um, it didn't like technically just work. It was like, it wasn't a gang. It was like literally just a bunch of guys that we all went to high school, all got mm. high together, all smoked weed, all drank alcohol, all went to parties and just butted heads with a real gang in, in the city I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And that's what triggered the gang that I got involved with to evolve. Okay. Because now they were like identifying us as a gang. Cause we, just cause we didn't have a name, but we acted like one, we walked like one, we talked like one, mm-hmm. we, we committed crimes like one, you know? So, uh, but it was just, yeah, it was just a, just a group of guys that we were all young together and we all hung out and, you know, we didn't want to be involved with them, but we wanted to be involved in our own stuff. So I keep hearing from people the, the allure for the gang or the group of friends that accepts you is that whole idea of belonging. And it sounds like the fear of not belonging to either racial category was a big issue to you. So the people who ended up accepting you and forming your quote gang, there was a sense of acceptance and belonging there, I assume. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's, I'm thinking back, you know, thinking about when when it happened. And I I remember like I was a really sensitive kid. Like you couldn't call me white. I'd get mad. You couldn't ask me what I was. I'd get mad. So I, I I was a really sensitive person inside. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't like criticism. I didn't like people telling me what to do. Like I was, I just freaked out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think 
there was a point when I used to hang out with those guys and I would tell them like, I don't care if I'm a part of you guys, but if you guys want me, I'll be here, you know? like Really? Yeah. <laughs> so it was weird wow. because, because they didn't accept me. They didn't they accept didn't. me either. No, I'm white. You know, I was the only white guy. Oh, you know? man. And those, some of my friends were the only ones that I would let call me white boy because one, I was afraid of them. Two, they'd probably beat my butt up. And I knew that, so I was really smart. So I had to outsmart them during this whole time, you know? And so I was like, okay, if I reject them, they'll accept me. What an interesting mindset or just survival mechanism, it sounds like, right? Yeah, I mean, I was a big time manipulator. I, I got a job at 15 because I convinced my parents, like, I want to work. Manipulated them to let me take homeschooling at continuation school and just fill out packets, you know? And, and I didn't need to go there, you know? I just wanted out of the house yeah so my whole objective since i was like probably 16 was always to manipulate my parents in any way possible like they put bars on the windows they put sensors in the house i got around all that like really? sensors. yeah i used to put little plastic like covers and i'd tape it to the sensors when my parents would go to sleep and i would go around and tape them all up so i could walk freely in and out of the house without it going off so they realized it so they put kind of bars on my windows so I just went to the garage. I found the tool. I zipped them, like just kind of like drilled it, like uh-huh. kind of pull it out and just be able to sneak through the bars of the oh window. Oh my goodness. In and out. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah. yeah. So when did you start getting in trouble? It sounds like you said earlier that um, you. Probably 11. Uh, 11? Did you start? Did you go to feeling. juvie before you ever ended up in no, prison? Never no. Never been to juvenile hall. My parents always picked me up. Really? Yeah, I got caught with a knife. I stole from Kmart some toys, and yeah, I was yeah. a I was a horrible little spoiled rotten kid. And you know, when I didn't get something I wanted, you know, mm-hmm. I'd steal it or I'd find a way to get it. Well, you seem to have some really honest self reflection going on. So you've obviously <laughs> dealt with the past. I can't wait to hear <laughs> later on, like what I, what brought I you mean, to that I, realization. I mean, I, that's the only way I know of self reflection is be honest, you know? Yeah, and, uh, that's true. You can't, if you can't be honest about who you were, then like, you're kind of not, you know, just kind of cheating yourself of realizing how you operate when you were young. That is such wisdom, actually, Eric. Because a lot of us want to hide that past self or the self, the ugly part of us that we don't like, or we want to justify it and, and minimize it and and minimize. Exactly. But you're calling it what it is and you're naming it. And that's part of the healing process, isn't it? And the growth process. Like for me, like I was always protecting me. Like I was like the father of who I was like, you know, he just had, you know, he was white, he was Mexican, he was this. No. And I started really to reflect, dude, I was a thief. I was a liar. I was a manipulator. Like early on, like even in my daily, uh, in my uh, paper route, I used to mm. always get over on the paper route. I always get, tell them to give me more extras and I'd sell them. I was yeah, I was, a, I was a real hustler from probably birth. I can't imagine your parents, how they must have felt. Like I'm thinking of this as a parent myself right now. And did they... How, what was their reaction like? like um, how did they... So, so I love my parents to death. They're honest people. And I think their problem was they were blinded by how much in love they were of me. They loved me so much that they blinded themselves of the true nature of who mm. I was. And, you know, I always tell them, like, please, you know, don't take responsibility for what happened to me. You know, 
I made my choices because I couldn't cope with who I was. I couldn't cope with my whatevers, you know, mm -hmm. my, my sensitive nature, my insecurities, my, mm -hmm. I want this, my spoiledness. Like mm -hmm. it, it was just a, a combination of, of factors that just played into this person to that. And it was hard for my parents because I was so good at hiding. Mm. I was like this great angel of a child at home. Yeah. And then I was this slick gang member, drug addict, alcoholic, violent person that just terrorized the streets and I would come home and lie and make them think I was working when I wasn't. I, you know, I just invent shit. So, you yeah. know, was, I've never been super honest with my parents. Like I've, even to this day, like if they get to hear this, they, you know, they, they might be a little upset, but I mean, I've, I, I just, I can't tell them everything that I've been involved with. It's just something I, you know, like, mm -hmm. I think they want to know either. If they do hear it, they're still going to love you anyways. Cause it sounds like you've got yeah. the best parents ever, the unconditional oh, support and love. They've yeah. been there every step of the way. They're the very first people that come see me when I'm incarcerated. Wow. They're the first people that answer the phone. You know, I, I traumatize them to a point where every time that phone rings at night, they're just like, oh, no. oh my God, here it is. You have a collect call from the Costa Mesa Police Department. Uh -huh. That's their uh, fear. I, I find it very, for lack of a better word, kind of you, sweet of you to say, don't take responsibility for this. Like you told your parents not to take responsibility for your choices and actions. I mean, that's pretty deep actually, because most parents, you know, they would, that's the first thing they're going to do. Oh no. What did we do wrong? What did we say wrong? What did we not do for him? And I think that's very, um, kind of you. That's a very loving gift to give back to them actually. Well, thank you. Yeah. As a I mean, parent, that's what I'm thinking. Well, I mean, you got to think about, okay. So they gave me a roof over my head. Uh, they punished me like, you know, when I would get, when I would lie or do something wrong, they would punish me. He taught me responsibility. He taught, my dad taught me the, the value of a dollar. Um, my mom loved me, mm -hmm. brought God into my life. Like, you know, like literally, mm -hmm. you know, she's Catholic. So she, you know, tried to bring God into my life. And I was like, I, I'm good. I have you to do. I don't need God. They did everything they could. So, you know, like if I look at it, like, what did they yeah. do wrong? You know, they weren't the perfect parents, but they tried. And yeah. Yeah. to me, when you have parents that try, what more do you want? Do you exactly. want parents that don't try? Well, and everybody wants to like pinpoint responsibility or blame for all this on somebody. And it, it's the hardest thing. I mean, yes, there are circumstances that lead us to making our choices, whether we end up in prison or not. But I mean, it's, very, it's very big of you to be able to just own it. And I'm very impressed that you are doing that and yeah. even you, voicing you it. It's funny because I remember the, the commissioners when I went to my parole board hearing to be released, they asked me like, well, what do you think your parents would have done better? And I said, honestly, I think they should have just let me sit in jail a few times. Like mm. they should have just let me fall. Let me, let me learn on my own instead of like coddle me and, you know, and control me. And then anytime mm -hmm. I felt controlled, I was like, you know, for years, me and my dad butted heads. Mm. I, would, I would get into fights with him on purpose. I knew what would piss him off. And I'd get into a fight with him. So he'd be like, get the hell out of here. Okay, later. So I didn't want to have to work. Yeah, yeah you pushed like, all the right buttons. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm telling you, I was a, I was a yeah. very, very intelligent kid at a young age. You know, I, my dad's a very smart guy. And I know my dad, you know, the genes passed it on to me. Mm -hmm. I obviously used it in the very 
worst possible way, you know, mm. like, but you know, yeah. it is what it is. You learn, yeah. and you live and you learn. Well, thank God that there is no specific or set time frame that we're supposed to come up with these <laughs> lessons that we're supposed to learn them. Like you don't have to learn them by 15 or 30. Some people learn them at different times and that's yeah. okay. It's just that you yeah. learn it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think I was like 40, 41. And I said, there you oh, go. Oh, okay. That's what life is about. <laughs> See, it's different for all of us and we need to give each other that space. That's true. For sure. So walk us through what led up to the incident that eventually uh, got you incarcerated. Uh, which times? Well. There's multiple. I'm a three striker, which means I have a, a rest history that's pretty lengthy from the age of 18. Mm -hmm. I was in and out of jail the minute I turned 18. Um, I got my first felony was, I think, in 1995 for a party. You know, we're all there at a party. Mm -hmm. Everyone's drinking and uh, didn't like these people that were there. And you, we mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, I kind of like took the lead and been like, hey, we got to do something about these guys. You know, they're, they're in the wrong area. They don't belong here. And, mm -hmm. Uh, next thing you know, you know, I'm telling guys, we need to get these guys and people are listening to me. And, uh, we assaulted a group of another group of individuals that were from a different town. And, uh, mm -hmm. one guy, unfortunately, uh, regrettably got stabbed and another guy got beat with a bat and me, um, I was arrested like about maybe through two, three months later because they couldn't figure out who it was. Mm -hmm. And finally, a, a witness came and said, we saw a white guy with a bunch of Hispanics. And, and they just took a leap of faith and be like, hey, let's go rattle his cage. And sure enough, they arrested a, me and a bunch of my friends. And mm. one guy kind of was like, yeah, he was there. We know he was there. He was at this party. And, you know, I, I pled the fifth. You know, I was mm -hmm. escaping conviction at all costs, as always, you know, lie, 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 deny, deny, deny. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, had to plead guilty to a felony conspiracy to assault with a deadly weapon and uh, another felony and felony conviction of active participation of street gang. So mm -hmm. I did like I got sentenced to six months because they didn't really have any evidence on us. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that were assaulted didn't want to say anything. And, you know, they they remained quiet. I probably could have walked away, but everybody wanted to go home. Everyone's like, come on, let's sign this deal. And I'm like, dude, they don't got nothing. We can walk away. Mm -hmm. Like we'll walk away maybe another year, maybe in a year, but we won't have a conviction. They're like, no, no. I go, no matter what, you're going to either be on probation for three oh, yeah. years or we could beat this in six months. They chose three years and uh, I got out. My dad was just sick of it. You know, he was like, you're, you're done. We're going to get out of here. So uh, they tried to enroll me in the military into the Marines. Uh, yeah. I went, did the test, I passed. Sergeant came and talked to my probation officer at the time and said, hey, we want to take them and we're willing to bring them in, uh, even despite the felony, because they could have been reduced to a misdemeanor if I do good for two years. Uh -huh. uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, I got violated not more than like maybe 12 days later for uh. violation, hanging out with somebody I wasn't supposed to. And. You know, I did think like 90 days here and there, here and there, you know, for mm -hmm. violations. And then uh, in 96, I assaulted a man, you know, strictly for my own personal hatred towards myself. And mm -hmm. I just blamed him for 
mm-hmm. what he did to my brother and, you know, basically assaulted him with a firearm and mm-hmm. uh, threatened uh, to kill him and threatened to kill him and everyone in this house if they ever called the police, you know, it was, my brother disappeared from me for a while, you know, he was still there presently, but mm. he's, you know, something happened to him through mental illness and just, you know, I lost my brother, you know, and, uh, you know, he's, he's still here, but he's, you know, he's not the same guy that I always had, you know, he's not, you know, he's, he's there, but he's not like, I yeah. call him blink. Yeah. Sometimes he'll blink in and then he'll blink out. Uh, and this person you feel was responsible for that change uh, in your brother? No, I, he just, he said something to my brother that triggered me. And, uh, oh. you know, I went over there to, you know, to scare the shit out of him and, you know, possibly shoot him, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, luckily my brother was there and, he, you know, I heard him yell at me like, no, no. Mm. And uh, kind of snapped me out of it. And uh, mm-hmm. we walked away and uh, he got arrested like within the same day. I got, I turned myself in like maybe about four months later, you know, as long as I told him, as long as you convict my brother without the gun, you know, because his gun's not his responsibility. It's mine, but I'm not going to turn myself in until you guys, because I knew they were going to try to pin him with the gun with me. Mm. So I knew if they don't have me, they don't have the gun. They need me for the gun. Mm -hmm. So they, they gave him his assault with no gun and he did like four months. And uh, so I did six years. I was uh, convicted in, no, this happened in 96. I got out in the end of 01. Was super happy that I was released and out of custody and got to see my kid at six years old for the second. You know, I, I was only with him for a few weeks when mm. he was born and uh, was going to work. I worked at Home Depot. I was going to college. I played soccer for the OCC college Nice. and uh, had a girlfriend. You know, I was doing really good. I was going to bars you know, having, you know, doing what a 26 year old should do and mm-hmm. enjoy life, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, one night I had too much alcohol. I was, you know, drinking a lot of vodka and orange juice and, you know, I was pretty heavily intoxicated. And, uh, we tried to, I tried to go buy beer because obviously I wasn't drunk enough. So there was a big, big line at seven 11 at 2 AM or right before 2 AM. I got there like at one 40 or 45 and I was like, geez, there's no way I'm going to make this line. And I noticed everyone had food, only snacks. Everyone was like, okay, we're done drinking. We're going to eat like normal people and sober up. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm not. I'm the opposite. I'm like, I need to get more liquored up. I'll eat tomorrow. Oh, wow. And uh, I asked everybody, would you mind cutting it? Do you mind if I cut in front of you so I can beat the 2 a.m.? And everybody was like, they understood. Like, okay, this guy's trying to get alcohol before 2 a.m. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And uh, the uh, the last guy that was in the front of the line, you know, I asked him, say, hey, would you mind if I cut in front of you? He said, no, like stand in line like everyone else. Do you don't think you're, what do you think you are special? And I was like, okay, I need to ignore him. So I moved around him. I cut in front of him in anyways, put the alcohol down, had my ID, my money. I was just like, can I buy the alcohol, sir, please? Mm-hmm. And they, And my friend and him was arguing behind me. And I'm just like, hey, I just want to buy the alcohol. I don't know what's going on back here. I just, here's the money. Here's my D. Mm -hmm. And he said, no. Mm. He told me, no, you're drunk. And I go, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I go, I've been drinking, but not not to a point where you can deny me alcohol. I still have like five minutes on the clock. He says, no. And he took the beer for me. And uh, I looked at that guy and I said, this is your fault, bro. 
And that was it. He got in the way of my alcohol and I blamed him for the entire night. I waited for him like some animal outside the door, just waiting to pounce on him, you know, and him, he was just being a good citizen. Little did I know he was a Marine, oh you know, ready to go, you know, ready to go to war for us, you know, and uh-huh. protect our country and hear him. I mean, I didn't know he was, you know, but I don't even think it would have mattered at the time. I was so yeah. ready to, you know, beat this guy up and uh-huh. uh, he never came out. And I just, you know, stood there. There was a lot of people in the parking lot. You couldn't even leave. And sure enough, he came out and uh, I went up after him, you know, degraded him, called him a bunch of names, trying to taunt him to turn around mm-hmm. to fight me like a coward. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, eventually I just got tired and I just ran in front of him and I was like, hey, man, you you're not going nowhere, man. You, you messed up my night. And, uh, he's like, he's always, man, you don't want to do this. And the minute he said that, that was, that was like, that was like, go to me. He just called me weak. Yeah. Those are fighting words to you. Yeah. So I punched him and I mean, that's all it pretty much took. It was one hit. He was almost ready to fall out and Mm. I hit him again. He fell to the ground and I started kicking him at his feet, like trying to get him to get up, like, get mm-hmm. up, man, let's go round two. You know, I thought, I thought, I thought you didn't want, I didn't want this. Mm-hmm. And I kept yelling at him. I want this, you know, like a maniac. Mm-hmm. Can only imagine what I look like. Uh, he got up, I got up, I walked, you know, I, I walked away, he walked away and I thought it was over. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, two good Samaritans, you know, uh, seen it all and told the police like, Hey, that guy right there, man, uh, just assaulted this guy for no reason. And they were right. Mm-hmm. you know and uh i'm glad they did catch me because who knows what i would have done you know i was mm-hmm. drinking and driving you know i really i i totally forgot about my incarceration like like i did not appreciate what i was given so do you think you would have been alive if you hadn't no. been sent back to to prison i know i think it either would have been dead shot mm. some even people said i would have that would have been a homicide on me Mm. Um, I probably would have killed someone drinking and driving. I might've killed myself drinking and driving. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I may have murdered someone and really been in, in prison forever, you know, and mm-hmm. really did some real serious time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unfortunately I was, uh, not convicted of a violent or serious felony. It was for a nonviolent felony because there was no injury to the, uh, to, uh, Christopher Rybicki, which is the man that I assaulted that night. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, I made some very terrible choices and hurt some people that didn't deserve it mm. and received 25 years to life for it. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. When did the realization that you speak of now, you can speak with such clarity now, hit you? Like, was it 
when you first got into prison the second time or third time, or was it years later? So in 2012, they changed the law that said anybody that's incarcerated for 25 to life under the three strike law has a chance to file a petition to resentence as long as the third felony wasn't a strikeable offense, which mine wasn't. So I came back, petitioned, was trying to manipulate the court saying I was this changed man, this great guy. I learned my lesson. I walked away from the gangs. I, I'm Joe citizen in, in prison. I was just lying to the courts of who I was. In reality, I was doing a lot of negative stuff in prison, you know, right up to that point still. And uh, uh, they spread right through it. They smelled the, they smelled it. The DA was very good. Mm. He investigated, found all kinds of stuff about me and uh, showed the court like, hey, this guy's a liar. And he was right. You know, I, I belonged in prison still. And uh, were you mad I, at him? No. I mean, at first I was just like, you know, I was like, gosh, man, let it go. Let yeah. it go. Like I didn't really do anything that bad. But I realized like that was his job. You know, uh -huh. and, and I didn't make it. I didn't make it hard for him. <laughs> I really made it real simple. Like, you know, like. He looked was like, this is a slam dunk case. I got Anderson. I'll take Anderson down again. <laughs> you know, and uh, he did. He, he won. The judge denied it. And I think that point when I heard my mother, my aunt, my family, hearing my father collapsing in the hallway uh, was the, one of the most brutalest moments of my life when I had to hear, like, all of that and hear the DA tell say it out loud, like, hey, I'm really sorry I have to say this in front of the parents, but Mr. Anderson's an animal and belongs in a cage, so he can't hurt any more people. And he mm. was right. You know, I, mm. I was. I was, a, I was an animal that didn't really respect anybody. I had no, I didn't really care about anyone's existence. Like, it was like all about me, mm -hmm. my tornado, and I'm going to run through whoever gets in my way. And if you're cool, we're cool you get in my way, I'm going to try to knock you down in any way possible because that was my mentality. I never learned any peaceful techniques and probably because I didn't want any. Yeah. You weren't at the place where you were ready to learn no, or accept it. No, I, I enjoyed people looking at me like, God, oh, I really don't want to mess with this guy. You enjoyed the fear that your presence brought, it sounds like. Yeah. When and how did this 180, this transformation of your thinking and your heart take place. I know that they're feeling your parents, seeing your parents' reaction was an impetus. What, what, how did you do the hard work? So, I'm wondering. so after that, you know, I've always struggled with God and, you know, for a while, I used to always like, you know, I can't stand you, God. I can't believe you did this to me. Like, like all I ask you is to do something fair for my family. Like if 25 years of life is fair, so be it. You know, and I just want the, I just want something fair. Like I deserve time. I want something fair. And mm -hmm. uh, after that day, hearing that about me and, and just sitting in the bus, I remember going back and sitting in the bus and I'm like, God, man, I was so close to that door. The only thing that came through my mind was, okay, I need to get this. I need to get that. I need to get my hustle on. I got to do this. I got to make sure I got this, this, this. And as I was thinking of all these negative things that was you know, basically criminal mentality, like, you know, criminal acts that I was going to start doing again once I reached back to the prison I was at, a song came on the bus and it said, running with the devil. And I was like, 
wow. Like right when it hit me, I was just, it, it was like instant. I was like, if there's him, for sure there's God. Mm. And I said, you know what? I go, all right, God, you, I'm going to trust you. And when I got back, uh, I kind of chalked everything up. I was, you know, people were like looking at me like, hey, what's up? Are you going to want to get this? And I'm like, I'm done, man. I'm, I'm, o- I'm out. I'm over it. And they're like, what? What do you mean over it? And I go, I'm just, I just got to get out. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, so I started manipulating it all again. Like, hey, I'm about to go back to court. My case is still pending. I really, I, you know, I don't want to have nothing in my hands. I have to transfer and lose. Like, so I mm-hmm. use that as a manipulation to like get people off of me. I knew how to trick people. You know, I was really good. You know, I was really good at talking. And uh, mm-hmm. luckily, because I was gone for almost two years fighting this case again, my points had dropped. And they came at me out of nowhere and said, hey, pack up. You're going to a level two. And I'm like, huh? I don't want to live in no dorm. I want my little cage with my one human being that I sell up with. I want my TV. Like, mm-hmm. like I was like an old tree that just had his roots dug into the ground. Yeah. You know, and I was so afraid to go to a level two because, you know, I knew I'd be in more interactions with more people. And uh-huh. I didn't want that because I knew how I was. But the new guy that I was, was a guy that wasn't afraid of being weak anymore. Like I didn't care what people thought about me more. It was really? like it was instant. Like my problem was caring about what people thought about me. Like I'm getting sweaty just thinking about it. I wow. feel it. I know it's an emotional issue that I have of what other people think about me. Mm-hmm. And you know, now that I'm 46 years old, I really don't care what anyone thinks. As at that time, I was like. I was probably like 42, 43. And those, those years, I completely stopped any criminality. I stopped doing all the negative things that I was doing. I stopped. I stopped. It was a struggle because I was always so good at making money inside. And, and being poor was, was another thing I struggled with. Like, you know, I know how to make money in prison. It's easy. And it was such a battle to not want to do anything. And, I, and there was so many people like, hey, what, look, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I can't I imagine can't. how hard that was for you. Uh, yeah, oh, it, was, I mean, it was a daily battle. And I'm so grateful that the place they sent me to transferred me out and sent me to Avenal State Prison where I got a job that I was getting like $140, $170 a month. And I worked there for a year. And that literally took away so much of that. Like I was able to humble myself to where like, I didn't, I didn't even want shoes for my parents. Like I don't, don't buy me no more clothes. Wow. Like I had the same pair of shoes for like two years. I bought you shoes off of people. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I knew like I had to stay grounded. I had to stay humble. Like I didn't want to be Hollywood in prison. I didn't yeah. want all the brand new clothes, the brand new shorts, the hats. Like, I just didn't. Uh-huh. It's like anything you have to practice being that, right? You had the daily practice of changing your thinking, changing your habits, changing your mindset, and uh, it eventually grew to be who you really were. Is that how it felt? Did it feel like fake at first? No, you know what? Like now that I think about it, like I, I really don't. I remember a lot of fear. I remember fear of what people thought about me, how they did. So I was like, how do I get? 
people off my case. Mm -hmm. I'm going to create a basketball league. Oh, you just divert and, attention. That's <laughs> there you right. go. My manipulation continues to work, you know, and uh, that's what I did. I created a, a big giant basketball league where I, I did my own editorial paper for teams. That's I did awesome. The updates. I did stats. I mean, you could have done fantasy basketball in my league. Like I did. So you kept yourself stat. busy and oh, kept I your focus. Uh -huh. I hired people. Uh, there's a guy named XNR Navarrete. He was one of my lead refs. Mm -hmm. uh, he was like my one go-to guy that I could always count on. And uh, I had a ref, but I was the commissioner. So it was hard for me to ref because I didn't mm -hmm. want, I understood the biases like, oh, you favorites. Yeah. And so once if I pulled myself, I, I mean, it was hard because I didn't, I didn't want to play basketball because I didn't want to taint the league. I wanted to give people mm. a league that they can, and people loved it. Like oh, the, I bet. The officers loved it. They wanted, they want, they, they, <laughs> They would bet. It's not supposed to say this, but yeah, there was there was some uh, friendly wagers happening within the the officials. <laughs> it's just nice to have something else to look forward to and to live for. And oh, that's that was a gift. I imagine you gave to everybody there. I was wondering though, did you have a friend or two or more that you could be true with, or who could be true with you, like? open up and be your real self or did you feel like you were having to work hard all on your own in this transformation no the the transformation was you know a group effort by learning from other people's and hearing other people's stories and understanding you know like what they've gone through and what i've gone through and like how do i you know mm -hmm. but really i used to just like listen to a lot of people and when i heard something really unique and really meaningful like i was able to relate or identify I'd, I'd keep it. I would, I would, I have, there's a lot of other people that's in my character now. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of, I'm not just Eric. Like I have, I have a lot of people that are always with me that will, that will go with me to the end of my, you know, to the end of my world, you know, when I die and they'll always be a part of me, you know, and I'll never forget many of them. Wow. You know, and, uh, yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I like how you describe that. A lot of people who are a part of your character. So mm -hmm. now you're seeing the good in people. And yeah. you're taking that goodness along with them instead of always thinking that people are out to get you. That's a massive change of mind. That's incredible. And it took a lot of hard work. I like how you're 100% honest about it. It's not just, oh, yeah, I made this decision and then it just happened. It's like you worked your butt off to yeah. make it happen. I appreciate that. I didn't want to die in prison no more. I knew that if I didn't change, I would. Yeah. So you said you eventually got out. Obviously, we're sitting here talking. So mm -hmm. you went to your parole hearing again another time, and apparently so, the DA had oh, nothing against you this time. Oh, my God. So so uh, I was scheduled to go to board 2023 after the law changed, and they gave us incentives with the college if you get your college degree, you get six months off. If you do college classes, you get 14 days off. If you do programs and blah, 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 you know, they finally incentivized programming. Mm -hmm. And I was working, I was going to school, uh, getting classes because I was trying to get that board date closer. Yeah. And one day in 2016 prop, or 2018, Prop 50, or maybe it was 17, I forget, Prop 57 passed, which said, any person with a nonviolent felony 
is eligible for early parole. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm any person and I am here with a nonviolent felony. And the CDC came with an implementation saying no one with the three strike sentence is eligible, but that's not what the law read. And I knew, I knew that that's what they were going to do. I, in mm -hmm. my head, I told her, I go, they're not going to let us out. I'm mm -hmm. telling you, they're not going to let us out. I go, but someone's going to have to appeal it and win. And when they do win, there's nothing. You can't get around any person. Mm -hmm. Any exactly. person was intended for anyone with a nonviolent felony because California's taxpayers were sick of having to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for someone that's been in there for that long for a nonviolent felony. They uh -huh. knew that that was directed to three strikers and CDC tried to hold on to us and they appealed and thank God Governor Jerry Brown said we are no longer going to appeal this. We are going to grant all nonviolent offenders for early parole. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to devise a plan. So then they finally said 2022, they're going to start letting three strikers go. So I was like, eh, it's not too far away. You know, my parents we were all happy. We're all happy. And then one day out of nowhere, you know, some, some friend of mine says, Hey, congrats, man. You, you're going, when do you go to board? And I go, Oh, in like three years. And they're like, it says you go this year. And I go, what? So I looked, I called my dad, I go, hey, go look me up on inmate locator. He did. Mm -hmm. He's like, says you go on board in August. I go, what? No way. And wow. I was like, I got six months to prepare. Oh, my wow. mentality was I'll see board in two years. You know, I'll do a two year hard reflection, blah, blah, blah. So uh -huh. I, had to put, I had to put everything in gear and I got my date. I got my uh, psych evaluation and the psych evaluation was horrible. They basically said, uh, Mr. Anderson will break the law anywheres on earth. Well, that's not what you want to hear. No. So I was like, I was super scared, super worried. I was like, oh my God, I got a, I got a moderate because everybody wants a low. And I got a moderate at a level two at 40 something years old. I'm like, this is not good. So I knew I had to work even harder and uh, thank God that I had a really good friends like Max, Levert, Joe Chem, Ray Latuli, Charles. I mean, there's Javier, Andres. Uh, there's just there's just so many guys that I can like literally really like. I had to mm. write a list of people of like who I've always thanked. You know, to this day, I've always thanked them for for giving me parts of them. So I can instill it into my system and, and my understanding in my life. So when I finally got to board, it was such a unique situation. Like usually it's like, sit down, what's your name? The commissioner stood up and was like, you speak Spanish? I was like, God, has it already started? Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it was a really unique situation. And I literally looked at it was like, this is an interview for a job and my job is my freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am very good at interviews. So I was like, so I said, you know what? I looked at my life like a chicken bone. Imagine all the meat. Mm -hmm. I took everything. I took the entire meat. I took everything. I left the bone. And you know why I left a bone there? Why? With no meat. So they could see the real you? No? So they have nothing to pick at me about. Oh, that's a good illustration. I like it. There was nothing. The DA 
that hated me and defended, you know, mm -hmm. California from me, mm -hmm. sent his own personal DA to oppose it. And my lawyer says, hey, some guy, some special dude came out to visit you. And I'm like, who? He goes, some DA from Orange County. I go, so the whole time I'm sitting there waiting to go to board, I'm like, I know what they want to hear. They want to hear all the lies I told them. Mm. And that's what I did. I just told them the truth about everything I knew. So I, what I did was I read all the transcripts and, and I was like, God, I was such a liar. I was so in denial. I was like, yeah, that was a real gun. Yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did this. I was a manipulator. I was a liar. Like, like I told the truth. Like I am with you. Uh -huh. Completely candid. I can't change the past, but I know who I am today. Was it weird admitting to the, the board all the things that you knew that you purposely withheld? It didn't, it didn't feel like a, a release, like a freedom, like finally I don't have to hide it anymore? No, I think it was more like, thank you. Finally, I got to be honest. Like finally, wow. I'm not afraid of being, uh, I'm not afraid of telling the truth no more. Like it was like, I was just so happy. Like, like in my, it was just natural. Like when they were like, uh, Mr. Anders, tell us about the phone. So I got written up for having a cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I said, which one? And they're mm -hmm. all, what? I go, yeah, I've had hundreds of phones. Huh? Yeah, I use phones all the time. I just never got caught because I was such a good manipulator and I was able to manipulate the staff, let them think I was some good guy. In reality, I was a criminal mm -hmm. because that's what I was. I was, I'm, I, you guys are the cat, I'm the mouse. And I got to do everything I can to get away. Mm -hmm. And that's, what I was doing. And he's like, why? And I go, cause I didn't care about you guys. I didn't care about the life. I didn't care about rules, regulations. You know, I realized how much of a problem I was to the prison system. And, and I explained to them what I understood, how dangerous I was and what I was doing, what I was doing to the prison system. Mm -hmm. I was able to like to explain what I was doing sincerely and remorsefully by being honest and, and completely candid about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't trying to be someone I'm not, you know, I'm, I just wanted to be me. I bet they appreciated that greatly. <laughs> they did. Yeah. They even said, like, we, it's very rare to find an individual like Mr. Anderson that's so candid and so honest with information that we did not know about himself. Mm. Mm. See, I didn't have anything about anyone else. Mm -hmm. So I only was able to tell about what I was and mm -hmm. who I was and what I did and why I did what I did. So I, did you take any special programs or classes while you were in prison that yeah, helped helped with this transformation did you end up taking defy courses in prison or afterwards uh in prison yeah okay so, so uh, defy came around 2016 in Avenal. prior to that i did like you know anger you know anger was my big problem mm -hmm. once i was able to put a band-aid and you know manage it to a point where i can understand like why I'm so hot headed. And I mean, I, I would, I would yell at people on the basketball court if they didn't get a rebound for me. Mm -hmm. I was that, that angry. And after a while I was like, man, this is really bad. Mm -hmm. So I started learning how to channel my anger as energy and wow. divert it and start more thinking, walking away, mm -hmm. breathing, bringing oxygen to my brain because it was like, the minute I get mad, I'm like this, of course I'm going to explode. Uh huh. So uh -huh. Um, after that, I did AA, NA. Um, I did so every program you can imagine when it comes, even a, um, even a, a domestic violence, you know, which I've never really been involved in, but I wanted to learn it because I wanted to eventually teach people it. That's incredible. And, wow. And, uh, I became a facilitator. I facilitated many groups. I did my own programs. Uh, I was a part of a, a at-risk youth program, which was called YAP. 
youth adult awareness program, which mm -hmm. I was in love with. And I love talking to these kids. Kids would come to the prison system, would tour the prison. And instead of scaring them, we educate them by letting them know that we went through some emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. We explain like what emotional problems we go with because mom and dad broke up or, uh, you know, there was some abuse or abandonment. You know, we understand like we had so many, such a rare, uh, a unique array of people that everyone had something to bring to the mm -hmm. table. And everyone knew each other's stories so well that I could sit and tell someone's story. What a gift they're giving those kids. Do you still get to talk to yeah. at youth at risk? Oh uh, yeah. To this day, I work for California Justice Leaders, which is uh, Impact Justice uh, uh -huh. AmeriCorps. And I go into uh, Department of Juvenile Justice and I talk to at-risk youth that are incarcerated for the last five, six, seven years, or even less. And we uh, plan out uh, a release program, like to where mm. we're going to do, we navigate their re-entry. So I'm like a, navig uh, a navigator sorts, you know. I, who better to do that than who's walked the exact same path? Exactly. Oh, I and, love it. Uh, so in 2016, when defy came i missed it you know because i was like um i'm programmed out i got it i figured it out i'm and that was my ego still playing into mm -hmm. you know like i know it all now mm -hmm. i was a guru but i wasn't <laughs> i was a dum-dum <laughs> and uh defy came the second time and my friends like you have to do it you have to do it a friend of mine named lavert cox like he was my roommate over there and uh he was telling us oh, trust me this is something you're gonna like mm -hmm. i promise you if you don't like it, I'll make burritos for the month. And I said, all right. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, I went into the program and they were like, they did this thing called step to the line. And I remember I was like choking up and I'm like, why am I so choked up? You know, like, and I remember like sitting on the line, they're like, you know, how many people have been incarcerated since for five years, you know, 10 years? 15 years, 17 years. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly young still. And I'm literally on a line with guys that are in their sixties. And I look mm. back and I'm like, Oh my God. And I just started tearing up. And I remember Catherine Hope was like, why are you tearing up? And I was like, I guess I just never realized how many years I lost in my life, you know, mm. so over half my life incarcerated, mm. like, you know, and I know there's guys that have been there since they were 16 and they're like 70, you know, uh -huh. so, but it still hit me, yeah. you know, and just my mom's face came into play, my dad, my brother, my son, my cousin, my aunt, like all the people that I love, you know, it's like, like it was just, it was so emotional and I realized, dude, I still got a lot of work to do inside. And had it not been, I think, you know, like Defy is pretty much the last real program that I took that really helped me out and was able to get me to understand more of a, of a personal development that it's a process still. I still have a lot of healing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to, to do, you know, like to this day, you know, I still get emotional and, you know, and it's just part of realizing like I'm a sensitive person, you know, and mm -hmm. I may look like this rugged guy, but in reality, deep down inside, I'm a very sensitive person and it's easy to hurt my feelings, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I fell in love with Defy, the volunteers of Defy, the, the social network of Defy, 
the interactions with the volunteers that I, I had dedicated myself to be a, a peer facilitator to that group every time they got there. And I did my best to get the position. And every time that I applied to get to be the, the, the facilitator, one of the peer facilitators at FI, I got it. That's incredible. Yeah. And uh, that's where I met Quan, uh, Andrew Glazier, Sandy Rodriguez, which is like my go-to to this day. She is my mentor. She is my, she just really, really cares so much about me. And I'm so grateful that I got a chance to meet her. I'm so grateful that Andrew Glazer got to hire her and she's mm-hmm. a part of my life because she's just super special to me. And uh, she's the one that's, you know, like, I mean, entire Defy, like, like if it yeah. wasn't for Glazer, Quan and all of them, Sandy wouldn't be in the position. So it's like, it was a collective effort, mm-hmm. just like it was for me to mm-hmm. reach who I am today it was a collective effort of other people intervening in my life and me opening my ears and being an active listener and really take into consideration what they were going through, like really empathize with what they were doing. And that was able to help me more, you know, cause like, mm-hmm. like I can feel people's emotions. Like, I don't know. It's like, like I can sense when something's wrong. Like I, it's like, I feel yeah. it. Yeah. And, I have uh, that same thing. Someone said I, I could be an empath or empath. 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 Yeah. yeah. Someone used to tell me that. So yeah, um, that's gotta be a really, really, especially hard for a guy I imagine like most people think oh yeah women nurturing already very empathetic mostly but for a guy to have that depth of sensitivity our culture does not allow that for men there's no place for that we we encourage a toxic masculinity and not the sensitive person so I can totally see how you ended up trying to bury that behind violent actions and and putting up as big of walls as you could to hide behind so that nobody saw that because that's a gift and you're using it now i think that's just beautiful you've learned that it's not a a weakness but a strength yeah yeah like the whole um masculinity and what a guy i kind of ripped up that contract because i knew i can't follow the rules like i want to be too masculine i want to be this i want to be that and then and I came to a point where like, like I saw the volunteers the way they were. And I'm like, dude, I want to just, I want to be just like them. Mm. Like, I want to volunteer. I want to help. I want to, want to experience things. I want to sh- give hope. I want to give people clarity of what, what they think they're going through, which is really not much, but, mm-hmm. but a so couple it, of things inside. It sounds like the mentorship, um, the person believing in you made the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. See, like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't think, cause no one told me what Defy was about, you know, and oh, really? when it, yeah, when they did it and they're like tunnel up and we're like, what? And then at the end, you're like, you're going to go talk and mingle. And I'm like, what? Like, we're going to talk to other people. Like there's going to be girls, like, you know, like, you know, and, yeah. and, and the minute, you know, that went, it was like the, the blue uniform was gone. Mm-hmm. The inmate, stigma was gone i was like hi i'm eric anderson you know what brought you here mm. hi you know i'm eric anderson i'm bilingual hey i'm eric anderson i'm really interested in what you do like like my natural person who i am it just, just flourished and that's why you know was so so passionate about defy and mm-hmm. the people that were in it and i remember uh 
telling Andrew and Sandy when we, you know, when I seen them the, the second time and I was like, yeah, hopefully, you know, I should be getting a board in the next few years. And when they came back during the cohort, I was like, Hey, I got a date. And they're what? I go, yeah, I go to board this, this. And they came back and I go, I got it. I'll be out. I'll call you right when I get out. And I got out uh, Christmas Eve of 2019 mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't check in till like a month later. Kwan was so angry at me. He's like, where are you? Where have you been? You told me you were going to call me when you get out. I'm like, uh -huh. uh, I'm sorry. I had it like in my head. I was, I didn't want no one to help. I, I knew ah. I needed help. I knew I needed help, but I didn't want the help. I wanted to do, I needed to do these 30 days by myself. Mm. And I transferred to LA I had no idea about LA. I live in South Central. I was about to walk to go eat Chinese food when I first went there. And they're like, don't walk around here, buddy. And I'm like, why? He goes, serious? You're in South Central. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. In the daytime, you're okay. Like in the daytime, you see white people. At night, I was the only one glowing. Oh. <laughs> and uh, it, wasn't, and it wasn't as bad because once I got a car and I was able to drive around, wasn't as bad like i mean half the people that are in that are walking around have their phone in their face mm -hmm. so someone told me like if you really were, want to be cautious look for the people that don't look at their phone that's good advice actually <laughs> yeah. you found a home now you're yeah you're I'm comfortable well, where you are well i'm i'm out of that area um i left some really good people i met a lot of really good people but i, I enrolled in college uh, I got my license. I got insurance. Uh, my dad let me borrow his car till I was able to get my own. I checked in with Sandy, Quan. I remember the very day they called me, they're all, we want you here right now. And I was like, uh, I'm all the way in Orange County. He goes, we need you here. We have this thing going. I said, all right. I drove way out there at like seven at night, got there at like eight, mm -hmm. uh, was involved with the program. And I was like, I just felt so happy. Uh. I came back the very next day. Me and Sandy game plan, like, what are we doing? I said, well, I'm in college, I'm in this, I'm in this. And she's all, hey, there's a program called California Justice Leaders. I think it's a really good opportunity. I think this is right up your alley. And I said, mm -hmm. yes, I applied and I got it. Awesome. And uh, this is my second year. I'm a senior member now. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was only two positions in LA that was going to get it. And I was one, fortunate to be one of them. Wow. That is just a beautiful success story. I yeah. am so happy for you. I'm Thank happy you. that things, because of the choices you made now, everything is looking up. You've, yeah, seen, you've seen how it goes one way, and now you've gone the other way because of good yeah. choices. And I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I mean, that is just incredible. And I, I love how you are holding up the other people who have helped you along the way as just as important. Like your story wouldn't be your story without these people in your life. And yeah. that's the beauty of love and of acceptance and having people in your corner. And I, that just makes my heart so happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's a lot of really good guys that have been in my life and mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't be here without them. You know, that's my community. I yeah. love them all and I miss them all. I know there's still some behind and, uh, I can't wait. I'm always there when they get out. Like uh, a lot of the guys that just got recently got out. I was there, there for them, picked them up, took mm -hmm. them to eat, like whatever they want. Good. I got you guys. Like, yeah. You guys uh, are my, you're my family. <laughs> we all need people in our corner. I love yeah. that you're that person. 
Oh, you're you're what you had wanted. You're what you wished you had. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I've always been like this. My mom always says she's oh, you've always been a social, very helpful person. That's neat. You know, now I'm able to really like use my voice, um, use my knowledge, my experience that a lot of people, you know, may not share. Mm-hmm. You know. If you could give any advice to the general public about uh the justice system or formerly incarcerated people, what would you want them to know? A very difficult question because uh, I really believe justice system is a must because uh, I've seen, you know, some horrible things that people have done to humans, Mm -hmm. children, women, men, boys. So I think, you know, it's uh, as much as I would, I could easily bash the justice system and just say what's wrong with it. I do believe it's it's a it's a must. I think they're they're in the right direction. They're moving in the right direction. Like trying to incarcerate the entire California youth, I think is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think I think uh, had it not been for Scott Budnick and a lot of people to pass youth offender laws, uh, we we'd be having massive amount of incarceration in the youth mm-hmm. side, mm-hmm. and also massive. Imagine if they, none of these laws changed during COVID, Mm-mm. we would have had at least. We would have had at least a couple hundred thousand deaths because of the Brown administration, because of uh, Newsom administration. I think there's a lot of change and they're going in the right direction. I think the probation office needs to be kind of overhauled and maybe given to a new organization Mm. of people with skill sets that that has experience in Mm. this this area to to be able to like to talk to people instead of just say, Hey, Hey, this, this, this. Yeah. Uh, but even the parole system from when I was in, when I was in it, involved in it in one to today, it's night and day. Really? The partnership that the parole office system gives to people that want to change makes it possible. If you don't want to change and you don't want to do the right thing, believe mm-hmm. me, they're going to be there to nip you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to, they're going to be like, Hey, I got to do my job. You know, yeah. And, you know, I can't, uh, but uh, so far, so good. You know, I think there's one thing that, that needs to be fixed and it's the life without the possibility of parole between the ages of 18 and, and or 17 and 20, 23, mm. they're being denied youth offender law. Like, like, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're being denied early parole, like mm-hmm. to, to just get a date outside of the life without to give them 25 to life because of the life without sentence. Mm. Uh, I, but I mean, that's not, you know, the justice system, that's basically politicians, you know, so, so the justice system has a lot of puppets, puppeteers, you know, so it's hard to like really nitpick who it was. But like I said, you know, I, I think ever since youth offender laws started coming in and the, the overcrowdingness of yeah. the incarceration, the out of state programs, you know, I think the, I think we're in a right direction. I mean, there's every organization needs some form of change consulting because the world constantly changes. That's so true. We have to change with it. I really appreciate your perspective in that because having been through it, you have a, a very on the spot perspective. You know exactly what it feels like from 2001 to now. So I think your voice matters a lot. And I like how you were mentioning about the, the youth law. Like what type of what type of hope is there for change if 
you have no possibility of parole. There's just incentive. Can you go for no hope your whole life? I can't imagine that feeling. There, yeah, there, there's, I've, I've met many men that mm. don't have hope. I would think once you lose hope, you give up. Yeah, why change? But you still can always see the sun rise. Yeah. And that will always give you hope. Oh, so that's to going to you. be your breakout quote right there. <laughs> I love that one, Eric. You know, there was something that I always kind of like learning. I still always be like, man, life's not fair. This law is not fair. This is like, you know, one day, like I started understanding, like life is not meant to be fair. There you go. That's a it's good truth. I don't. If life is never imagine if life was just all the way perfect mm -hmm. we would what would we be doing mm -hmm. we would not have no worries we'd have no problems we'd have no character we'd have no grit we'd have no no experience we'd have nothing mm -hmm. but just easy i can imagine what we'd look like oh isn't that the truth and i've heard multiple times it's through the suffering that our character is yeah is yeah. grown and transformed and changes mm -hmm. and yeah. as much as you wouldn't have wanted to You've never would have chosen the suffering, but in the end, in a weird way, you're kind of seeing how it makes you who you are today yeah. and a little bit thankful for it, I imagine. Yeah. yeah, life's meant to make it tough because that's how it molds you into the person you're supposed to be. Because yes. you're supposed to be things and do things and impact people. And like, we're all meant to be connected in some way. Yes, we However, are. Yeah, 1,000%. Yes. That is one of my biggest takeaways doing this podcast is I see the connection between all of us mm -hmm. so much clearer. Yeah. Um, if we just all had the chance to just talk to each other without judgment, we would really appreciate one another and see our common humanity, despite whatever labels we put on ourselves. You know, it's, yeah. that's the beauty of it all. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's just our human dynamics to judge. It's our human uh, right to like, look at someone like, I don't like you for no reason. I know. <laughs> Sadly, Absolutely it's no true. reason. I don't like that person. Yeah. And then you meet them or her and you're just like, oh my God, you're the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just, that's what's just great about, you know, human interaction. Yeah, it is. Well, let's wrap this up. I'm gonna give you your three closing questions. What is your one tip to make the world a better place? I would think the best way to make this world a better place is you really have to really give a crap about someone else over yourself. If you're able to do that every day and really care and really consider someone and be like, you know, just like in a traffic jam, instead mm -hmm. of honking the horn, kind of slow down, let the guy get in front of you. You know, it's not, you know, I think if we have more empathy towards one another and consider one another, you know, and I think that would be a good start. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I have the tip to change the world. I love a quote by this one guy. He says, uh, I think it's Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. I love that one. That's yes. like one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, but yeah, I don't have a real tip on how. To I think change. that's a real tip. <laughs> Give a crap for other people. I'll take okay. that one. <laughs> okay, there you go. I is. like that no. one. Uh, what are you the most thankful for right now? My parents. My parents for sure, because uh, had it not been for them constantly being there in my corner, 
I may be that one guy that would have gave up hope years ago and not mm. still be in there and not caring, you know, but uh, my mom, my mother, my, my dad, my mom and my dad, they're just uh, my rock. They're amazing. They were like my drive to get home. My, my entire goal was to make it home to them before they passed away. And uh, I'm so thankful that I get to see them and they get to see me. Good. Me too. That's a beautiful thankful. And lastly, what is your favorite quote? You might have just jumped the gun on that one. It might have been Gandhi. Do you have another one? That's nope, it. Nope, that's it. That's the one. Well, you, I think you that's a change you want to see in the world. That's a perfect quote. And I think you have actually taken that to heart and done it. Yeah, I mm -hmm. feel that I try to, you know, but, you know, I, I still make mistakes. So, you know, I still get a temper, you know, I'm not this uh, perfect human being and I have just, you know, just totally got clarity of life, but I got clarity on myself Good. and I can only do what I can do to impact others and uh, mm -hmm. I'll be happy while I'm doing it. Mm. That's what I'm doing, man. I'm living my life. And uh, a friend of mine always says, man, you're living the best, you're living your best years, aren't you, buddy? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, he's an awesome friend right there. Yeah. Well, I have been so inspired by your story. Oh, my gosh. Your honesty, the depth of information you chose to share. I hope that didn't bring up any extra traumas for you. I hope it was more freeing instead of full of, of trauma and sadness, but thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. it. It's a part of me, you know, and uh, I, I love my life. I love what I've gone through. Could I have done it different? Yeah, of course I could have, but uh, you know, I made my bed and I laid it in and I got around one of the toughest obstacles any human being can go through, you know, sure it's a life sentence, you know, mm -hmm. next to, you know, medical life sentence. Mm -hmm. you know so i'm very fortunate that i got through it and uh nothing happened mm -hmm. you know i mean bumps and bruises happened but i mean for the most part my my sanity is intact uh my heart is intact hope is intact and you know i'm looking forward to the future and looking forward to new experiences uh i don't turn down no experiences either you know awesome I, i'd love to hear that hope is intact that that's probably the thing that breaks my heart the most is the lack of hope for so many people. Yeah, it's sad. Mm -hmm. it's sad to see because you're just like, why? I know. Like, come on, you can get out. Mm -hmm. And they're just. You can't make people it. do things. Yeah. No. Yeah. You can yeah. only take them to the water. Well, and, and you experience that, I imagine, in the work you do now a lot. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I love it. I love what I do. I'm so grateful that I get to talk to these kids and. Uh, my co-members and uh, for CJL, you know, I'm very passionate what I do and I continue to do it. And uh, I don't know where it's going to take me, but, you know, like I said, that's why I don't turn down experiences. And uh, when somebody wants to talk to me, you know, I'm, I'm there. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking with me. It's so wonderful to meet you, Eric. So wonderful to meet you too, Corey. Eric was not shy in naming his problem and the root of his choices. It was that he cared deeply about what others thought of him. Haven't we all been in those same shoes? Yet, at the time, he didn't have the tools to handle that fear and insecurity with mental clarity. How many of us would be so forthcoming in telling others where we lacked character and understanding in our youth? Most of the time, we prefer to chalk it up to stupidity instead of our own ignorance. I'm deeply impressed by the level of character Eric shows now that he understands his mindset and the vastness of all it affects.
Eric certainly inspired me to look to the people in my life who have made me a better person and to honor them the way he has done. I love when he said, I always thank my friends for giving me parts of them that I can instill into my character. Isn't that the beauty of friendship? Most of us want to take credit for the good in us and blame others for the bad in us, but not Eric. His honesty and humility genuinely impress me. He's the real deal. The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung aptly advises that we cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. Eric took this advice to heart by calling out his past behavior without any excuses or justification. He sees clearly how he used to be a thief, a liar, a master manipulator, but no more. All of us need to do the uncomfortable work of recognizing our shadow selves because the sooner we acknowledge this part of ourselves that we despise, the less power it holds over us. That's the secret. May we all learn to accept the good and bad in both ourselves and others, just as Eric has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.